Hello and welcome to the Meg podcast. Back after a couple of months break um, for various reasons, which we won't bore you with. Um, and back in a whole new year, 2024. So bye bye 2023. Here's 2024. Let's see what it brings us. Hopefully everybody will have lots and lots of great games over the year. Um, Meg games and of course other games. Enjoy your wargaming in its widest possible way. But obviously here on the Meg podcast we are talking about Meg and as usual I am here with Richard Jeffrey Cook and Matt Haywood. Hello guys. Good evening. Good evening. So hopefully you had a excellent holidays and, and we were all at a competition last weekend. That's the weekend before we're recording this. Uh, don't know what it will be for you as listeners. Um, so we started playing already and as actually we were just discussing between ourselves um this coming weekend richard is off to is it brussels richard off to brussels yes to uh, the iwc competition great stuff i mean uh, on, on that is it's um yeah finally getting out of my shell and i hope hoping later in this year to go to a competition in france as well i've i've booked in so committing to go and uh, meeting our, our friends on the continent and no doubt getting beaten by them <laughs> but that's all part of the fun <laughs> okay so we're going to kick off 2024 with one of our historical based podcasts but um, slightly different to previous ones um, we're going to look at the major battles of a well-known general along with um, some sample army lists from the period, from the uh, the army they commanded and a couple of their opponents. Um, hopefully this will be a bit different, a bit interesting, and look at some of the history around it as well. Um, we're going to start with Belisarius. Um, the, the armies are therefore are early Byzantine, um, African Vandal and Sassanid Persian. I'm afraid for uh, for for the fans of fans of the Ostrogoths I'm afraid for this podcast they don't appear to have made the cut <laughs> so but then again realistically most of the the, the important battles field battles they fought were uh, actually a bit later than when Belisarius was commanding in Italy um, fighting against Narsus if I remember rightly Richard that's correct isn't it oh I think you're right but that's not yeah. really my <laughs> area of particular expertise yeah so. I, I just had this moment of crisis thinking have i put my foot in yes it was narcissus wasn't it so so and ho hopefully along the way we'll have a, a bit of discussion around the actual battles maybe just looking at some interesting points of of them and certainly for one of them i'd be interested in matt and richard's views on how you might actually um undertake a refight of the battle because it is it's potentially a bit different it's certainly not two armies lining up against each other so anyway without further ado we'll get into this I'll, i'm going to start just by doing a bit of scene setting um, of the, the the few decades before belisarius appears on the scene as a military commander um, and this this essentially sort of follows on from the history richard did in a in an early podcast of ours um, attila and the early years where we looked at um, the rise of Attila, the Hun, 
and, and his his battles against the Romans. Um, so you, you may wish to go back and listen to that after this. I'll try and remember to put a link to that episode in the notes. Anyway, the, the situation for the Roman Empire, um, yeah, this is sort of a period where we transitioned the name Roman to Byzantine in the East. Um, but of course, Byzantine was never used historically. That is a, I believe, a 16th century um, affection. Uh, a German author started calling calling the East Roman Empire Byzantine, um, which of course is the name of this Constantinople before it was Constantinople. So that's going back into classical times, really. Anyway, at this point, the you know, the, the empire in the West is in terminal decline. Um, Africa has been lost to the Vandals, which is financially crippling the Western Empire. And Richard definitely touched on that in, in Attila the early years. Um, and there were some attempts to recapture it. These relied very heavily on Eastern Empire help. And uh, to some, they failed miserably, basically. And the Vandals were well and truly ensconced in, in North Africa. So the empire is really just sort of fading away over the 6th century. And by the time we get to the early 6th, sorry, the 5th century, by the time we get to the early 5th century, Gaul is under Frankish rule, Spain is under the Visigoths, Italy is under the Ostrogoths, and Africa remains under the Vandals. However, by comparison, the empire in the east managed to make it through the 5th century more or less intact. Um, one of the factors that undoubtedly helped this was near total lack of conflict with the Sassanid Persians to the east. Uh, Persians basically had too many problems with nomads on their eastern borders, such as the Hepsilites, to worry about Rome. And with Rome focusing on, say, the Huns, well, you know, they were quite happy not to fight each other. There were a few flare-ups, but nothing major. In the, four, in the 440s, the Eastern Empire, as I just mentioned, had to face the Huns. They weathered that and the after effects of the collapse of Attila's empire. Um, and that resulted in two separate groups of Goths within Roman territory. Um, they ended up merging under the leadership of Theodoric the Great, and then were eventually persuaded by the Emperor Zeno to invade Italy purportedly on behalf of the empire. Um, it's a good way to get rid of them. Um, they were successful and the, that removed their threat from Roman territory. Um, there were also a series of revolts of Isaurians under Zeno, uh, who was an Isaurian himself. But by the end, by the time Anastasius came to the throne in 491, that, they were reasonably settled, although they did rattle on for a bit. But they were, they were not an existential threat. Um, Anastasius, Anastasius' reign, not Anastasia, that's a Russian princess. Anastasius' reign was not trouble-free, but does seem to something of a re-establishment of stability. Um, the economy was in good shape and there was a healthy surplus on taxes. And in fact, he managed to abolish some taxes, which is always popular and quite unusual. You, you know, so the Roman Empire was generally adding taxes as it went along. And one effect of this, it proved possible to increase the pay of the army um, to a great extent. And conscription um, became a lot rarer. They actually managed to fill the army with volunteers. Um, Anastasius did have one short war, war with Persia, which is essentially a draw. Um, and just as part of the scene setting, it's worth noting that by this point, the eastern frontier between the Romans and the Persians um, had really become very hardened into, 
to a series of heavily fortified cities, um, which made major gains by either side incredibly difficult. Um, possibly the ultimate proof of this was the the the, the great war of Khazraou II in the early seventh century, uh, which, despite the problems the Byzantines had at the time uh, with the Persians in the ascendancy, it took them the best part of a decade to get to penetrate their way through Mesopotamia into the into the softer inner parts of the Byzantine Empire. And it pretty much worked the same way. And also one important thing that happened with Anastasius's reign was the the fort expansion of fortification of the town of Dara, which was a close point to the Persian city of Nisibis. Um, this was actually in contravention of a treaty with the Persians, who complained bitterly. Um, Anastasius paid them, paid them some money to shut up, and they were in no position to force the issue. Um, but it remained a bone of contention for the future, and quite a lot of action took place around that. So we've had a long period of peace in the East, but that was actually broken under Anastasius' successor, Justin, when a series of wars with the Persians started. And these were going to last for a great deal of the sixth century. Um, um, up to the point when uh, Morris came to the throne um, and helped restore Khosrow II to his throne after he'd been usurped. Um, that only really caused peace in about the last decade of the century. So we sort of entering a point of about 70 years of very, co very considerable warfare on the Eastern Front. Um, however, a lot of the action took place in Lazica, which is part of modern Georgia, the eastern end of the Black Sea in Armenia, due to the previously mentioned cities in, in Mesopotamia, um, although there was some serious action there. Um, one result of this was that Justin's successor, Justinian, famous Justinian, um, actually created a whole new field army in the east, the, that of the Magister Militum per Armeniam. Um, to reinforce the Eastern Front. And this was mainly created by drawing troops from other armies, and so actually didn't increase the overall military of the empire by much. And so it's into this sort of environment that um, Belisarius uh, starts to appear in history, uh, concentrated a bit there on the East, because that's where he pops up. Right, we shall bring Belisarius into the story now. Um, as far as we can work out, he seems to have been born around about the year 500 CE in modern, what is now modern Bulgaria and would have been Thrace at the time. Um, so that, this means he would be a Latin speaker, probably, rather than a Greek speaker. Um, the empire, you know, is now the East, what was the Eastern Roman Empire, what we call the Byzantine Empire, is mainly Greek speaking. Well, say that, I think when you get into Syria and other areas, there are plenty of other languages as well, a very, very number of Semitic languages. But um, for a lot of the, so as is always the case, you get the upper class view. So we get this as Greek speaking, but he, he was almost certainly Latin speaking. Um, so he comes from about the same area that the emperors Justin and Justinian came from. And it does appear that um, Belisarius had been a bodyguard possibly, or Bucalarius of Justinian at some point. Um, don't think we know much about him till he appears in Procopius's history uh, for the year 527 CE, um, when he has a military command fighting against the Persians in Lazica. Um, and in fact, as I reached the point in my notes, I note I have put down that he 
Procopius says he receives the command because he had been one of Justinian's guardsmen. You know, nepotism is great. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And the, basically, the Roman Empire had always worked on that basis. <laughs> um, uh, he's At this point, he's found operating alongside another of Justinian's ex-guardsmen, a guy called Sitas. Um, this, this guy would soon be appointed as Magister Militum per Armenia, for Armenia, when to command Justinian's new army. Um, and then in 530, he was actually promoted to be Magister Militum Praesentalis, um, commander of the army, theoretically, in the emperor's presence, uh, which is the most senior command position in the army, after the emperor. Okay. In theory, the emperor commands everybody. Um, this suggests that Sitas might have been the senior of the two. Um, there's, there's not much detail of this fighting, but it's clear that it didn't go very well. And the, the, this joint command was defeated in two battles by the Persians. Um, not a lot of details, but it doesn't actually appear to have affected either person's career very much. Obviously, Sitas did well. And in 530 or just before, Belisarius was appointed to the position of Magister Militum per Orientum, which commands the main field army around Mesopotamia. At this point, Justinian orders him to take um, the offensive against Persia. Um, however, before he can actually work, get into gear and launch an invasion of Persian territory, um, they receive news that there's a major Persian offensive aimed at the city of Dara, which we mentioned previously. Um, so Belisarius moves to defend the city. Um, so it's a major point, it has to be defended. Um, when he gets there, um, despite knowing that the Persians are a substantial army, he decides he's not going to just sit in the city and see out a siege, he's going to stand outside and fight the Persians instead. So again, obviously his, his experiences of being defeated by the Persians haven't put him off. Um, the Persian army is said to have numbered 40,000 infantry and cavalry, um, while Belisarius appears to have had about 25,000 soldiers himself. Um, this included 300 heralds and 1,200 troops are described as Huns. So, you know, the Persians have a significant new numerical advantage. Um, just as a quick aside, I point out at, at this point uh, that this army and none of the other Persian armies mentioned in around this time have any elephants and it it, it which we normally associate with the Sassanid Persians um, and it does appear that it wasn't actually very common for the Persians to field elephants in field battles against the Byzantines but they used them quite frequently in sieges so <laughs> make of that what you will so anyway outnumbered as he was Belisarius therefore decided to have some trenches dug in front of his army to help mitigate the number of uh, the, the fact that he's outnumbered. Um, so, which in some ways always feels a bit odd to me because he's got an army with a significant number of cavalry, but there we go. <laughs> yeah. he, he seems to have known what he was doing. Um, the Byzantine army is, is uh, deploys behind these trenches um, and there's a hill on their left which will come um, become important. Uh, the Byzantine army appears to be deployed with infantry in the centre, two wings of cavalry, 
Um, and and there's a slight twist on this. There's two small bodies of Huns around about each end of, of the infantry line. Um, it's worth noting that the generally taken that the, the trench isn't just a single line in front of the army. There's, there's the, 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 the bit that the infantry are standing behind. Um, now, I've seen two interpretations of this. The more common one is that it's stepped back, so the infantry are basically be further away from the Persians than the cavalry are. But I've also seen an interpretation where it's stepped forward, so they're projecting in front of the, of the cavalry. Um, the description in Procopius isn't actually that helpful either way. Um, I, to make you, uh, it's one of those I'd say, please go and read Procopius and make your own mind <laughs> mind up. But a key factor is that these two small bodies of Huns uh, are placed so that they can intervene, especially into the flanks of the Persian cavalry if they if if they push back the Romans. Um, so that might aid you when thinking about it. Um, I can't make my mind up, by the way. The Persians appear to have deployed um, with cavalry on the wings and presumably the infantry in the centre. Um, in terms of relative numbers of cavalry and infantry for both armies, the, the sources aren't very helpful. Um, the, given, given the usual proportion of Byzantine armies at this point, Belisarius may have had about 10,000 cavalry and 15,000 infantry. That's a bit of a guess, but around about a third, maybe a bit more cavalry in the armies does seem, seem reasonably typical. Persians, absolutely no idea at all. F fighting took place over two days, uh, but it was mostly on the second. On the first day, there's a bit of skirmishing on the Roman left, uh, which was then followed up by uh, a number of single combats um, described by Procopius. And in Procopius, the Romans win all those single combats to much morale boosting. Um, maybe take that with a pinch of salt, who knows? Um, but, but that was about all that took place. Um, overnight, the Persians get 10,000 more men as reinforcements arriving from Nisibis. Um, so basically, at this point, Belisarius is outnumbered nearly two to, or probably about two to one. Um, the armies line up the same as they had the day before, with, with one small difference. The commander of the Herald Cavalry suggested to Belisarius that basically they should hide behind this hill that's on the left of the Roman line so as to be able to intervene um, and charge the Persian in the flank or the rear. And Belisarius goes, that's a good idea, do it. So this 300 is snuck out of the line, put behind the hill um, to await events. Um, the, per the Persians, you know, now massively outnumbering the, the Byzantines, then attack. They attack first on the right, um, heavy push with cavalry. Um, the, in, the initial exchanges are bow fire, and Procopius describes the, the bow fire as um, the Persians are a lot more Persians and they're shooting more rapidly. However, there's a wind blowing at them, so this evens it out, and basically nobody gets a real advantage in this missile exchange. Um, so after, after a period of missile exchanges, the, the Persian cavalry then charge the Roman cavalry, um, despite the ditch that's in the way, and start pushing them back. Um, 
so we could assume that the, they they have a numerical superiority or that they had in fact got the better of the missile exchange. At this point, the Herald um, climb the hill and charge into their flank to, as you would expect, fairly devastating effect. And the closest body of Huns also joins in attacking the, the flank of the Persians. Uh, at this, the Persians then withdraw. Um, not necessarily a rout, but they've, they've suffered significant casualties and they're not going to take any more part in the battle. The Persian attack then switches to their left wing, the Byzantine right, um, and the Persian commander reinforces the left wing with his reserve cavalry. And basically, they attack in the same way that the Persian right wing did. Um, if anything, they come to hand-to-hand -hand combat quicker and again are pushing back the the Roman right wing. Um, and in a rather similar way to the other wing, again, the, the Hunnic body charges into the flank of Persians and Belisarius brings his Bucalaroi up to help the right wing Roman cavalry um, and charges into the Persians as well. The Persian commander on this flank is killed by the Hunnic commander, apparently. Everything's always ascribed to the commanders in Procopius and they break. At this point, the Persian army runs away and Belisarius has scored a very significant victory against a substantial Persian army. So big tick to him. So I've got one thing that's always puzzled me about this battle is the effect of the ditches. You would generally expect if the ditch is a ditch to be a significant barrier to cavalry. I'm not sure I necessarily agree. If if you're trying to defend a ditch or other linear obstacle with cavalry, it's actually quite hard to do. You're better off being further back from the obstacle, letting your opponent cross and then attacking them while they're disorganised. OK, um, that's what that makes sense. Yeah, I can live with that. Um, you, I mean, so it, perhaps it, it's, I mean, I've heard a suggestion, I don't know the truth of it, is that in fact the ditches were there to try and direct the Persians to where the Romans wanted to fight them. Um, so they may have been more um, a strategic um, place strategically to encourage the Persians where to attack mm -hmm. rather than necessarily being an obstacle to defend. OK, that's only my suggestion. No, no, no. I mean, again, you know, it, it's despite Procopius writing quite a lot about the battles, he, he doesn't actually go into any sort of particular detail with that. So, so I suppose we, the, the, that makes perfect sense. And the, the bit, I suppose the bit you're saying, if the Roman cavalry was standing a bit behind and maybe had been driven back a bit by the archery of the Persians, the Persians could cross. The Romans weren't quite ready to counterattack. Yeah, when it comes to that. Matt, Matt what do you, have you got any thoughts on that one? Or I mean, any, any, any Easter 
European experiences that could inform us since you uh, that's your area. Well, the, the question that comes to mind is if ditches were that effective, why do we not see them more? <laughs> Perhaps it's a bit like what we sometimes say about things like barricades and stakes in Meg, because you don't get a fight. <laughs> and if you're actually in a point where you want to force a decision, yeah, which kind of lends into Richard's theory that, mm. you know, it, it either wasn't entirely across the front or it was blocking off certain areas where they really didn't want the Persians to be. Yes. For whatever reason, flat piece of ground or, you know, yeah, so, yeah. No, I think Richard makes the most obvious sense. So Yeah. yeah. So, so, again, raise the question. OK, so we've got partial ditches not very deep ditches <laughs> um how would how would we de depict them and, and mechanism for them if we were going to refight the battle i think it's the same argument you could use for many streams and smaller gullies mm. in ancient battles that the level at which they affect the battle tends to be um too detailed for our games to right. re reflect so the simple answer is use occam's razor and um and leave them out <laughs> well, well as i say uh, from my rereading procopius he's you know he's not talking about any persians falling in the ditch <laughs> as, as when they attack them so i could go with that any clever mechanisms to spring to mind matt I mean, yeah, no. <laughs> simple answer. I mean, you could say if people haven't moved, maybe there's a count it like a pervase almost. That you know, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's it's a, a up factor in the first round, but mm -hmm. I don't even think that works because if the Persians were successful initially, yeah. as it sounds like they were, then yeah, their effect was minimal. Yeah, and the fact it happened on both flanks <laughs> suggests. Yeah. It, it's it's pretty consistent um so yeah it's, it's always it's a, a strange one really um but equally belisarius obviously saw it as a force multiplier well you, you clearly had some reason you don't just dig ditches for the sake of it <laughs> <laughs> not not when the enemy's bearing down on you that's for sure yeah so so anyway is it oh yeah the upshot of it is his decision not to just heavily garrison Dara and to actually fight the battle paid off. So the following year, um, the Persians invaded again, um, but with a somewhat different army. This this time, um, the Persian king ordered an army. It was about 15,000 men, apparently, and these were all cavalry and in, and there were also 5,000 allied Arabs with them. In fact, the whole thing may have been the idea of the Arab commander. Um, when I say the 15,000, that may or may not include the Arabs. Again, Procopius has managed not to be specific on this. Um, so you could interpret it either way. It's 15,000 Persians and 5,000 Arabs, or 15,000 in total. Um, as it appears to have been basically a, a heavy duty raid, um, I think most people tend to go with the, it's 15,000 in total. Um, it's, 
you know, as as, as we will see, it, they they definitely didn't come to come and fight a big pitch battle. Um, anyway, when when he hears about this, Belisarius collects an army of about twenty thousand together, uh, and also recruits Arabs himself. Um, there are Arabs allied to the Persians. There are Arab, Arabs allied to the Byzantines. Um, and by a staggering coincidence, the number of Arabs given for Belisarius's army is also 5,000. Um, call me cynical. I'm a bit suspicious that both armies have 5,000. <laughs> but numbers are always a bit unreliable. And maybe it's just a case of there's quite a lot of them and they were about equal. Richard's looking as though you've got a comment coming on this. <laughs> I, I don't believe any statistics given to you by a government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and again, to be honest, interpretations of the numbers on the Byzantine side, of, you know, I said it's an army of 20,000. Some people think that includes the Arabs, some people don't. So we could have 20,000 against 15,000, 25,000 against 15,000. 20,000 against 20,000, 25,000 against 20,000. A bit of take your pick. Obviously, the, the previous year, there would be casualties for the Byzantines and the Persians on both. So, yeah, so you can spend days talking around that. Um, I tend to drift to the lower end of numbers these days. But, but I think the important thing is the Belisarius had a material advantage in numbers. Um, so, I th certainly on the Persian side, we can assume the Arabs were all mounted. This is a this is a mounted raid, and I would th think it's highly likely on the Byzantine side as well that they are, the, per the Arabs are mainly mainly if not all cavalry. Um, if we take Belisarius as having twenty thousand Romans, again proportions of cavalry and infantry are not actually properly explained, but you'd probably be looking at 8,000 cavalry and 12,000 infantry. Um, one thing we do know about the infantry is they include 2,000 that are um, sometimes described as Isaurians by Procopius and sometimes as, I've completely forgotten what the other description was, but it, <laughs> which is really helpful for all our listeners, isn't it? Something like Lycaonian you know, or something. Um, Isaurians had a good reputation as fighters, the others didn't. Um, and as we'll see, they, they didn't actually fight very well. So I don't know whether there's some, some dissing of them going on in the naming. Um, one thing they were, though, is very enthusiastic for battle. Um, so overconfident and not very good would probably, you know, however you want to classify those in an army you were doing. So the Persians invade. Uh, they invaded by a slightly unusual route, somewhat to the south of where they normally did. Um, but the Byzantines picked up on this fairly quickly and Belisarius moved to intercept them. Um, when they realised that the, the, they'd, been, they'd been rumbled, um, the Persians started to retreat. As I said, they weren't, they weren't here for um, pitch battle. It was a big raid, caused as much trouble as possible, possibly to influence ongoing peace talks um, throughout these these wars between the Persians and Byzantines you you there are envoys moving backwards and forwards and discussing discussing peace um, eventually um, 
the Persians t were brought to bay at a place called Kalinicum, um, which, which is right by the Euphrates. Um, they're retreating out of Roman territory and they line up, they finally decide they have to line up for battle. Uh, Belisarius has somehow managed to catch up with them, despite the fact he's undoubtedly got a lot of infantry. Um, and so they turn to fight and they have the Euphrates on their right. The, the Byzantines will have them on their left. It's a classic Meg, secure flank, deep water. <laughs> Bang on, straight out the rules. <laughs> so up to this point, Belisarius has been completely happy just to shepherd the Persians out of out of Roman territory. He's actually described as sort of following a day's march behind at some point and basically camping where the Persians had camped the night before. But now he's caught up. Um, he, he's faced with a decision. Um, according to Procopius, Belisarius doesn't want to fight. He just wants to carry on with his successful push them out. We'll see what happens. You know, let the peace talks continue after our great victory of the previous year. Um, however, Procopius also says that the army wanted to fight. And this is where these Isaurians, pseudo-Isaurians, come in. They, apparently they were one of the major agitators to fight. Um, I, I think they are like Caonians. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Looking for, who came from somewhere in the sort of centre of the sort of South Turk Turkish plain. Right, rather than Isauria. Thank you. Sa save my blushes for not writing it down in my notes. <laughs> See, always trust Richard to come up with these things. Um, okay, did, one of Belisarius, interestingly, one of Belisarius's arguments for not fighting was apparently that the, the next day was going to be Easter day, the day they would fight on, or the Easter Sunday, which was a fast day. So he didn't want his army fighting if they weren't going to be able to eat that day. Um, well, you know, uh, one can believe that or not, but Easter Sunday is the date given for the battle. Um, however, the army is insistent, and these Lyconians um, are very insistent that they must fight. And so apparently Belisarius gives in, and you know, the next day he draws up for battle. Um, the battle lines are very simple. The Belisarius draws up with his infantry on the left, and then his then his Roman cavalry, and the the Arab cavalry on the right. So the ground sloping up to the right for the Byzantines away from the Euphrates. Um, most reconstructions put these Lyconian foot also on the right between bodies of cavalry. Um, now, when I reread Procopius before this, I wasn't convinced that he actually says that. But it, but it would, but the course of the battle does suggest they were at the very least on the right of the infantry line, um, for reasons that will become clear. Uh, the Persians basically line up opposite. Uh, they deploy their Arabs opposite the Arabs that um, the Byzantines deployed, and all their Persian cavalry in front of. The rest of the line. So basically, they just lined up opposite each other. There's a classic two armies sitting opposite each other. Um, battle commences much the same way as it did at Darrow with an archery exchange. Um, and again, um, Procopius contrasts the two, the archery of both sides. He 
he says that the Persians shot far more rapidly than the Byzantines, but that the Byzantine shooting was stronger because they drew their bows further back. So we've got two different styles of archery, apparently. Um, but again, doesn't seem to have made too much difference on that. So draw, draw your own conclusions. But the rapid shooting for the Persians is, of course, the basis for the army list classification of shower shooting. So we may come to later. So there's quite an extensive exchange of, of, of archery at this point. And then at some point, the Persian commander moves a significant number of his cavalry to his left wing. Um, and then they assault the Roman right wing. Um, breaking them, basically, or most of them. The Arabs on the Roman side leave the battlefield, uh, no doubt pursued by the Arabs of the Persian side. Um, the Lyconian infantry um, perform pitiably, pitifully. You know, wherever they are on the battlefield, they, they get very quickly destroyed, although their leaders seem to fight well. The, the suggestion is it was actually the uh, Arab cavalry fleeing that exposed their flank. Mm. And that may explain why the uh, Lycaonians were no match for the Persian cavalry. Yeah, but uh, it has been, Procopius's description of them is pretty damning in that they didn't fight well, apart from their two leaders who inevitably yeah. get <laughs> So it would make, yeah, that, that, that would be an explanation as to why people put them further out to the right. I mean, there is a suggestion that the uh, Romans, Gassanid allies actually were treacherous and uh, fled intentionally, although there's that seems to be a bit of an after the event story. Yes, I think that tends to happen, especially to Arab allies. <laughs> allies quite often get blamed for things and Arabs, I think, at the time were seen as quite flighty. Yeah, they well, their reputation starts with Crassus's um, defeat at Caro. Of course, yes. <laughs> and the Arab re uh, references to Arabs don't seem to get any better in Roman sources after <laughs> that time. <laughs> oh, got off on the wrong foot and didn't improve. <laughs> anyway, so, so at, the, at this point, most, if not all, of the Roman right and most of the cavalry is is routing, leaving the infantry stranded. Uh, now the infantry then form up basically with their backs to the Euphrates in a roughly U-shaped formation, um, and then stand there. The Persians keep trying to charge them down and get nowhere. Um, it seems that the the you know whilst we say I was saying earlier that the the Roman infantry is is not the battle-winning force, but they're obviously very competent at resisting. And the, and the Persians can't break them down. Although, of course, at this point, the Persians have been shooting for a lot of the day, and a lot of them will have been fighting against the Roman cavalry. So you, what one could maybe suggest that they weren't, they weren't in tip-top position to be charging down cavalry. Um, but basically, the, the Roman infantry hold out until nightfall and then can evacuate um, the area. Um, what Belisarius was doing at the time, there are 
two options. Um, Procopius suggests that he joined the infantry and, and stayed with them um, during their resistance and, and no doubt encouraging them. The alternative um, in another source is that he left the field with the cavalry and the infantry were just did it under their own local commanders. I mean, obviously, they've got generals with them. <laughs> you know, they're not just sitting there all alone. So, you know, it's one of those. Is Procopius making excuses for Belisarius? You know, personally, my view is it would be quite possible for him to be swept away <laughs> with the cavalry. But Procopius obviously doesn't want his hero to be seen to be running away. So again, Richard, obviously, you know something about this. Any thoughts? Um, I, you pay your money, you take your choice. Um, <laughs> uh, he, I suspect it's who was responsible for the history and whether they were a fan of Belisarius or an opponent <laughs> of Belisarius. Um, I think you've got two conflicting accounts. Yeah. Um, I, judging by the late, the fact that there was a later inquiry, yeah. and Belisarius was actually um, found to be not guilty of causing the defeat. I suspect he hung around for long enough to um, at least provide a reasonable impression that he was trying to save as much of the army as he could um, rather rather than fleeing in abject uh, fear. Yeah, no, I think I, I think I could go with that. I mean, there's always the, you know, because obviously Procopius worked for Belisarius. And there's always the, it'll always be the suggestion that he's just bigging up his paymaster. But yeah, as, as Richard just said, uh, after this battle, uh, Belisarius was removed from his command and recalled to Constantinople, uh, where an inquiry into what had happened, and apparently including his defeats earlier as well, pre-Dara, were taken into account, but he was acquitted. So, yeah, again, we don't know any details of the, the of what went on there. So, but yeah, but the, the ultimate thing is he was acquitted as for that. Um, well, one thing that happened while he was in Byzanti um, Constantinople at this point are the the Nica riots. There was a, basically, the populace got really quite upset at Justinian for a number of reasons, and, and as the Constantinople population was wont to do on occasion, started a massive riot. Um, Belisarius was one of the people, uh, along with his Bukalari that were with him, um, in, in suppressing this riot. I say the riot happened over a number of days, um, centred on the, the, the Hippodrome. Um, and there are figures of 30 to 40,000 civilian casualties as part of this, which is truly astonishing, um, considering that would be far in excess of the population of most cities in the Byzantine Empire at the time. You know, when you leave aside Constantinople, Antioch and Alexandria, most cities are vastly small. You're talking if this if those numbers are in any way near true, you know, it's like wiping out three or four cities. <laughs> it must have been a horrific. 
Yeah, the I mean, the suggestion was they were trapped in the hippodrome. Mm. Um, and the troops showed no mercy. Um, uh, yeah, it's um, pretty horrific it, under any circumstances. <laughs> it, it, it's one of those, I can't think of any mitigating circumstances, really. You know. Anyway, this this obviously this obviously kept Belisarius in Justinian's good books, um, and shortly after he was he was reappointed to his old command, but given a remit to take an army to Vandal-held Africa to retake it for the empire. Um, a there'd just been an usurpation of the Vandal throne, and um, a, a, a noble called Gelimer had just deposed the. The, the the sitting king um, and because of this there's a revolt in Sardinia as well um, so Justinian sees, sees an opportunity and takes it um, I think there's a lot of discussion about whether Justinian actually did have a grand plan for the reconquest of the as much of the old Roman Empire as possible but he was certain you know whether whether he did or not he was certainly had an eye for a chance here. So he, he he gave Belisarius an army and said, go and retake Africa for us. And so Belisarius got his army together and set sail. Um, the army he was given was remarkably small, really. Um, 5,000 Roman cavalry and 10,000 Roman infantry, uh, 400 heralds, so they keep cropping up, 600 troops that Procopius described as Massagete, could be Huns, yes, yeah, so there'd be nomads, and almost certainly Belisarius's own Bucalaroi, which may have been numbered just over a thousand, would be added to that as well. Um, the fleet was fairly large. I mean, there's 30,000 sailors and was escorted by 92 warships. Um, and apparently on the warships, there were 2,000 rowers who were, were fully able to fight as well. So they could always have been drawn on for that. But you know, regardless of those numbers, you know, about 17,000, maybe 19,000, if you include the rowers, uh, is a lot, lot smaller than the expeditions that, that the Eastern Empire had launched in the 5th century to retake Africa from the Vandals, which had failed miserably. <laughs> the last one had almost bankrupted the empire. So, so it's quite, yeah, quite, it would appear to be quite a daunting task. And you know, Procopius certainly says that quite a lot of Justinian's senior advisors were heavily against it. Um, but he pushed through anyway. Um, one thing that will, was initially in Belisarius's favour is that the Sardinian revolt had drawn off 5,000 uh, of the best Vandal troops under Gelimer's brother Sazon, I think. <laughs> No, it's T-Z-A-Z-O-N, um, to go and suppress the revolt. So a, a good chunk of the best troops wouldn't be there at the beginning. So anyway, there's a, there's a few bits and pieces on the way, which I, I will gloss over, and Belisarius lands in Africa and starts to march on Carthage. At this point, Gelimer is, for some reason, is away in the south of the country and takes a bit of time to react to but Belisarius is landing advancing. But when he does, he comes up with a plan to attack Belisarius on the march with three bodies of troops converging from different directions. 
uh, presumably hoping to catch him on the march and snuff out the invasion as soon as possible. Um, now, this, this, this I, I think it would have to be called a fairly ambitious plan, you know, coordinating, coordinating three different bodies of troops in a period when the communication is basically as fast as a horse can gallop is is certainly quite ambitious. So, you know, he, he seems to have taken a bold stroke at the moment. So Richard's yes, <laughs> shaking his what, head. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> We're about to find out. <laughs> so um, a, a battle does occur. This is this is this is quite an interesting one. So it could be a little, little difficult to describe. Hopefully, I'll manage it um, because it's sort of sort of watch the moving parts, and it takes place over quite an expanded area. Um, it takes place close to a place called Ad Decium. Uh, sorry, Decimum. Um, which gives its name to the battle, which is taken to be the 10th milestone in Roman miles from Carthage. Um, it's basically just south of Carthage. Yes, it, I, I, I believe basically the, it's slap bang in the middle of modern Tunis. <laughs> so we're never going to excavate the battlefield. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so it's so on the day, on the day, but Belisarius is marching out, marching towards um, towards Carthage, but he knows that there's going to be a, a vandal reaction. So he has, he has sent out 300 of his Bucalaroi, um, um, probably about four kilometres ahead of the main body of the army. Um, he's also sent 600, the Huns, the Massagete, are covering his left flank, um, again, some kilometres away to the west of the army. Um, the rest of the army is more or less with Belisarius, and their right is cut is covered by the coast. They're marching along the coast road. Um, Belisarius's column of march has Roman cavalry, and then Bucalari, and the infantry are bringing up the rear. Um, right, we're now going to go to different parts of action across the field. So the Bucalari at the front are uh, advancing towards towards Carthage. At the same time, a body of Vandals under under a general called Amatas are coming from Carthage towards the the, the rendezvous point that Gelimer is trying to do. However, it turns out they are not exactly proceeding in good formation. Um, the description is they're scattered in bodies along the road. Um, the Bucalaroi, around about midday, meet these these troops, or, or at least the front of the column, um, ill-prepared, but probably numerically superior force, and basically they charge them. <laughs> Straight up, take one look and go, charge! Um, apparently, out of these 300 suffer 12 casualties, <laughs> but, but they rout the front of this column. Um, and then they just carry on down the road, bashing every group of vandals <laughs> they meet <laughs> and basically pursue to the walls of Carthage. So I don't know if in Meg terms this is a charge, the ultimate charge phase combat. 
But, you know, it's, it's obviously this, this Byzantine general Amatus has just really not been paying attention. You know, he's coming to rendezvous for a battle, but has just left his men strung out and, yeah, whatever, move, move along in small bodies. Well, yeah, and the front ones run away and that sweeps all the ones yep. behind. And then the panic goes straight down the line and they just disperse. We don't know how many men there were in this group, but they almost certainly outnumbered the 300 Bucalari. Now, the Bucalari are good, but that's still some going. Um, round about the same time, another for, a force of 2,000 Vandal cavalry um, come across the Huns, who are out on the left wing of Belisarius's march column. Um, so, again, we've got a significant number of Vandal cavalry, 600, 600 Huns. Um, and the 600 Huns absolutely trashed them. Uh, Procopius says they just charged them, charged the Vandals who just break and run away. Um, I suspect there's going to be some missile exchange in there. Before that, maybe not a lot. The Vandals may be so shot up by one volley. Maybe it's a maybe it's a good old Meg shoot and charge. Who knows? But, you know, basically outnumbered about three to one. Um, the the Huns win. Um, the general who's called Gibamundus is killed and the Huns run off pursuing the pursuing the Vandals. So <laughs> that's another disaster <laughs> for the Vandals. It's not going well. So that, at this point, Belisarius is, is marching up the road and he's his advance guard and his flank guard have, have done the business on theirs. So at this point, Gelimer, with the main body of the Vandals, is getting close to Ad Decimum. Um, now, if it, the advance, the next advancing body of Roman cavalry, um, who I believe are described as the Federati, although these aren't the Federati of old, they're basically regular troops. Um, so they they must have got somewhat ahead of the rest of the army or been ordered to do so by Belisarius. And they come across, Gelimer, they're met by Gelimer's presumably much larger force. Um, a fight ensues over possession of a hill, um, but Gelimer's troops drive off the Roman cavalry who then withdraw back towards the main body. Um, here they meet um, the rest of the Bucalaroi, um, probably about 800, who have been sent forward by Belisarius, and both units then withdraw or flee, depending how you want to read it, back towards the main body in Belisarius. So maybe the, 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 the Federati were defeated, and this time the Bucalaroi get carried away, the same, similar to the initial Vandal force. Um, however, when they get to the main body, Belisarius rallies them or stops them retreating, calms everything down and pulls the body together and advances with them towards where Gelimer is. Um, at this point, Gelimer has come across the, the, the site of the initial fighting where Amatus was, uh, was killed in that initial clash. Um, Amatus, I forgot to mention, is Gelimer's brother. Um, and Procopius' accounts is that at this point, 
Gelimer stops and decides to arrange a burial of his brother's body. Um, doesn't appear to have drawn up his troops in any great order. Um, so they're sort of milling around a bit at this point, at which point Belisarius and, these, and all the rest of his cavalry turn up, um, charge Gelimer's troops, who are somewhat dispersed. They break and run away. And so all three bodies of the Vandal troops have now been broken. It all seems to, have, you know, an elaborate plan seems to have gone uh, pear-shaped rather quickly um, and perhaps rather surprisingly. Um, after this, Belisarius is free to advance on Carthage the next day and walks in and takes possession. So uh, a sort of running encounter battle. So I think, you know, the, the obvious question I now want to ask Richard and Matthew is how would you go about refighting this? It's a very dispersed battle with different bodies of troops running around. I, I personally, I would do it as a series of actions um, with the results of one action feeding into the next. Um, so you sort of do the attack on the troops coming by Carthage, run that, and if the if the Byzantines rout them, all well and good. And if but if the Vandals yeah. defeat the Byzantines, come up with some way that then so, impacts on. So the the sequence, yes. So the sequence of engagements ends in the main battle. That right. What you you take into account the losses or gains yeah. from the previous or well, the losses mainly from the previous encounters. Yeah, so if that initial Bukalari and the Huns are beaten, we'll end up with a battle with all of Gelimer's mm -hmm. troops and those two bodies together fighting. The, the other way you could do it is sort of with a sort of like the old matchbox system of hidden movement. Um, oh and allow the commanders to um, move the troops around um, without knowing where the opponent is. Because it seems to me that the Vandals at least had no idea where the Byzantines were. They, they, um, they. <laughs> uh, and uh, the, I suspect the Byzantines got a bit lucky personally, but there you go. Oh, my view is they definitely got lucky, you know, they, they, they did so. Matt, any, any thoughts from yourself? The, the other way that you could do it is to fight it on three tables. The main fight on a okay. six by four, and then four by four tables on either side, but deploy them almost 90 degrees. So you've got like the Byzantine cavalry towards the main table pointing outwards, and then do it that way. Mm -hmm. Because if the Vandals win, they're pushing into the main force from the sides. If the Byzantines successfully delay or yeah. win, that you know it stops the Vandal reinforcements. I do have one question: who mm -hmm. described who described it as a battle plan? Because it almost sounds like me to me that he, the the Vandal commanders basically said, "We're going to meet here. Get your troops moving." It's almost like a rendezvous point to meet up for a uh, battle. Not yeah. not. I I think that's a fair comment. I think I think that would certainly apply to. The troops coming out of Carthage, who have been told to go to a place. The the other two bodies, um, Gelimer with the, the majority of it, I believe the 
the troops that were defeated by the Huns were detached from his army to approach the meeting point by a different route. So he, he does seem to be at least trying to get his troops arriving from different points. You know, it does some, somewhat feel to me there is an attempt to catch the Byzantines on the march, or at the very worst, we will all rendezvous ahead of them. Mm. Yeah. But I, I think the troops coming from Carthage probably did have a just metres at, at Decimum, and the detached troops were probably told to go to Ad Decimum via this route, and I'll come up via the other route. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd wondered, uh, I suppose, uh, similar to Matt, whether you could do it on a reasonable size table, impacto in six mil, and have everybody on there, and somehow have the come up with. I don't know whether whether you would be dicing or, or pulling cards or whatever for the arrival of the different vandal forces on table. To add that, you, you need some uncertainty. Yeah, it, um, with a big enough table, you can certainly yeah. do pacto and have some quite separate engagements yeah. that then come together. Yeah, it was just my thing how you would deploy it on one board that was reasonably manageable. I don't know whether you could do it on a six by four is probably not big enough. Maybe a six by, maybe an eight by something. <laughs> you might just about get it on. Mighty pacto movements. That's yeah, it's the half base width rather than the full base width. So yeah, it's just trying to try and do it as panoramic and yeah. I think you might lose a bit of spectacle on that though because you'd have a lot of board and a low troop density. <laughs> uh, indeed, but uh, um, yeah, it's, it, well maybe it's one I'll try at the Society of Ancients <laughs> convention <laughs> this year. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that, yeah, and how you how you decided how the vandals would enter the enter the enter the arena, so to speak, I think could be quite key. You've, you've got to, I think you've got to give them a chance, haven't you? Yeah, um, but you could also have a few dummy forces on the table just to throw in a bit of confusion. Oh no, that could be an interesting way of doing it, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of hills around there. There's some salt flats. Um, yeah. As well as the roads of it, so so yeah, I think you could, you could I think you could throw a few things in like that. The uh, yeah, so you're approaching a force and you don't know if it's real or yeah, whether it's just a few donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we shall push on with the narrative now because uh, coming coming to the this is going to be the, the fourth and last battle I'm going to go through. Um, which is which is a well. It has some interesting points. It's more of a a straight up battle. Um, so I'm flicking through some notes. Uh, so after after this defeat, um, Gelimer writes to his brother in Sardinia and basically says, "Get your troops back here now. We desperately need them. <laughs> it's all gone a bit pear shaped so far." So his brother rushes his five thousandths troops back from Sardinia, and these were, were described as the 5,000 best troops, and rendezvous with Gelimer. Um, so that's the only firm number we've got for the Vandal side. Um, Gelimer has no doubt pulled together as many of his survivors from, from Ad Decimum as possible, 
Um, not sure how many casualties they had there. Uh, I very would very much doubt that he pulled together more than 10,000 more soldiers. So you're probably looking at an army that might have been 15,000 men tops. He did manage to recruit some Moors, some, but they were not very enthusiastic and had been talking to the Byzantines and had allegedly given Byzant Byzantines some of their children as hostages. So I don't know if Bergelema knew that, but he, you know, it, they obviously weren't going to be very reliable. However, Gelema had been in contact with the Huns in Belisarius' army to try and suborn them. And they basically agreed that in an upcoming fight, they wouldn't join in. Or perhaps it was would join in on with whoever's winning <laughs> when, when the outcome became, became more obvious. So anyway, the, the two armies approach each other. Um, on the day of the battle, the Vandals appear to have a bit of a jump on Belisarius. Um, initially, initially, at the start of the day, they, they didn't deploy their army. And then about midday, they suddenly deploy it. Um, and this, this appears to have been timed to coincide with the Byzantines' usual habit of taking a midday meal. Um, so again, they're obviously thinking about this, if this is true. Um, so they, they, now this, you actually refer, coming back to a point Richard made earlier about streams, the, the Vandals deploy behind a, what, what is a very minor stream? Um, yeah, Procopius says it's so minor, it's not even been named. So this could be one of these really, it's a, a very small, very shallow, and it doesn't appear to have actually made much impact on the battle. Um, definitely caught the Byzantines on the hop, that Belisarius reacted by basically sending all his cavalry up to deploy opposite the Vandals, with his infantry following on behind. Procopius describes, he says, at the walk. So they, they were just ambling along, coming up to when they were needed. Um, the Vandals deployed with the 5,000 best troops of, of Tazizon in the centre of the line, with the other troops deployed, Vandal troops deployed on either wing, and the Moors with the army are deployed behind, behind the main body of the Vandals. Um, the Byzantines are deployed very similarly. The, the Bucalaroi are in the centre of the line, um, rest of the cavalry right and left flank, and the Huns, I think, were out on the left flank, hanging around, looking a bit shifty, no doubt. The... The, the, the battle the battle's a very, very very old one. There isn't like a big mass charge at this point or anything. It's not even all the Byzantines riding up to shooting distance, loosing arrows and trying to get the the Vandals attempt. What happens is the, the commander in the centre of the, the the Byzantine line is ordered to take some Bukalaroi and cavalry forward to goad the, the centre of the Vandal line. So they splash into the stream, splash across, sort of skirmish a bit with them, a um, bit of desultory fighting, um, and possibly charge the, the band centre, um, and they are repulsed, or maybe it's a feigned retreat. Um, at this point, the cavalry retire, apparently, all the way back to the Byzantine camp. Um, but Tazon in the centre prevents his troops from pursuing. So if it is a feigned flight, it doesn't work. And the Vandal line stays intact. Um, 
the, the Byzantines then repeat this with another group of Bukhara in regular cavalry who basically rinse and repeat and again withdraw back to the Byzantine camp. The fact they go back to the camp is possibly the basis of the suggestion that this is a feigned retreat um, or they were broken. Um, so the, the, the tactic of trying to provoke the Vandals hasn't worked. So, so the commander, who's called John, um, basically launches an all-out charge with the Bukalaroi and some regular cavalry in the centre at the best troops in the, in the Vandal army, Sazizon's Sardinian veterans. And a big fight ensues in the centre. Um, it seems to have been decided by the fact that Sazizon is killed, at which point... The rest of the Byzantine army, the right and the left wing, also advance across the stream to charge the Vandals. The Vandals now put up very little fight and run away. The no doubt shifty looking Huns then join in on the side of the Byzantines and pursue the Vandals, probably straight to the camp. And that is that strange, strange battle in my view. Um, it basically settles the war in Africa. The Vandal Kingdom has collapsed. It is now in the hands of the Byzantines. Um, one thing, one thing to note in that is that this, despite the fact that Gelimer as the king is there, he is not mentioned as fighting at all. He's mentioned as having, giving a rousing speech at the beginning, and then that's it. He eventually runs away to some mountains in in the south, and later gives himself up and is sent back to Constantinople and I believe pensioned off to a villa somewhere in what is now modern Turkey in Anatolia. So the, I would suggest in this one the Vandals have just performed peculiarly badly. Even their best troops don't seem to have done that well. As soon as the generals killed they run away more or less. Yeah, you wonder how committed they were to fighting for Gelimer, mm. don't you? Um, yes. Bear in mind the way he had, um, I mean, I believe he deposed his cousin. That's uh, how he became. I think it was, his cousin, was, I think it was Hunneric. Hildrick. Hildrick, yeah. I and, think it is. Yeah, and when, um, when the Byzantines invaded, he had him killed. <laughs> yeah, because Hildrick had tried, to, or Hildrick had tried to convert the uh, vandals from their Aryan Christianity. So perhaps he wasn't the sort of first choice of the vandal nobility <laughs> by any means. Um, but yeah, the, the speed at which the vandal kingdom collapses is almost as quick as the way the Roman province of Africa collapsed to the vandals 100 what? 20, 110 years earlier. That's true. Um, so, um, it, I mean, there, there may not have been, of course, a huge number of vandals. No, they very much were the nobility of the um, kingdom and and didn't really have, perhaps have any, they weren't, weren't any support from the majority of the population. So, um, Having already been defeated at Decimum, um, lost Carthage as a capital, um, 
the authority of Gelimar perhaps was already um, pretty minimal. And of course, three, if I'm right, three units of Vandal cavalry get formed in Persia, don't they? As, uh, I believe it's four, yeah. I mean, after, yeah, after this, but, um, after Belisarius, the yeah, Belisarius shortly returns to Constantinople, taking uh, the significant number of Vandal prisoners with him and presumably Gelimer as well. And they're, they're formed, it's three or four units who are called Vandali Justiani. Justiniani, sorry, and and promptly sent to the eastern front. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. They, they the Romans obviously thought they could fight quite well because you wouldn't have <laughs> enlisted yeah. them in your own army if they were useless. Exactly. Yeah, it it, it is. I suppose it, you know, again, there's an I think there's an inevitable list question here, isn't there? You know, under Gallima, should 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 the Vandals be downgraded in quality? <laughs> well, you can always downgrade. <laughs> and you don't you can downgrade them and you don't have to take the melee experts so if you really want an interesting vandal <laughs> army that is one for you poor form loose poor cavalry devastating short spear devastating charger but no melee expert i bet they come in quite cheap yeah uh, we could probably tempt um graham clacker with that one i, I was we, just thinking that was one for graham possibly. <laughs> to, to move on from poor cataphracts to poor vandal cavalry yeah actually there's, there's one thing i didn't mention about this apparently um in this battle the vandals were ordered to only use their swords which i i doubt would make <laughs> I think you could, so perhaps you could claim they shouldn't even have short spear <laughs> for this battle Possibly mediocre generals would be a good start if that's the first order you um, issue in the well, battle. Sazizan seems to have been okay, but nobody else does. <laughs> no. It's um, yeah, it, it, the speed is is very peculiar. But no, Richard is absolutely right. They did, the Vandals do seem to have been um, the ruling aristocracy. They were a different brand of Christianity to the mainly Catholic population, and I, I believe Belisarius did order his army to be as, as well behaved towards the what they would see as ex-Roman population. So so I think I think it, you know the, the Vandals would not have the local population on their side. They were very much re, relying on the ethnic Vandals. And you've got to have figured that the local population after 110 years have probably forgotten Byzantine tax breaks. <laughs> you funny you should mention that because there were revolts later on <laughs> and i believe rather inevitably <laughs> taxation was a factor in 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 that as well so uh, yeah so yes yeah. just anyway. to sort of sorry did was there something else i was else? just going to say for anyone who's interested poor Formed loose protected short spear devastating charge of cavalry coming at 62 points each. Well, can you get them below 60 if you drop the short spear? <laughs> but you see, oh, now yeah. suddenly I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> Just think of the number of figures you'd have to buy. Oh, I'm sure I could borrow them from Ray. <laughs> Actually, if somebody's willing to, to field it, I think we should we should. All, if we've got any suitable figures, loan them to the <laughs> poor deluded soul. <laughs> well, but by comparison, superior protected short spear, dev charger, melee expert cavalry coming at 100.
77 points each. <laughs> so well, so you can get about one. three poor ones, three <laughs> poor ones for the price of one good one. You know, you, you know, if you were commanding an army of the good ones and was attacked by an army of the of the poor ones, you would guarantee that the poor ones on their first dice roll, despite being down, would get an S for the shatter. <laughs> oh, they would. I don't I don't think that helps them a great deal, does it? No. You're down two levels of quality. So all it'll do is oh, it'd turn it into a green green. Green green, and then they'd skull you every yeah. single one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe. It's, okay, probably not. Statistically, a bit wild, but I, I could just see the first one coming up as an S. You're you're yellow. You're yellow. You you will blank. <laughs> they'll Didn't roll happen. an S, and then you're onto green green, and they'll get a couple of skulls, and you'll just start banging your head on the table, going, "What's going on?" I was going to say it didn't happen to my elephants last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, right. Just, just, just the last little bit, just to wrap up Belisarius's career, because you know, the, basically there are no more of these big battles for Belisarius. He's he's sent to Italy, Sicily, and Italy to reconquer that from the the Goths. Um, that just turns into a, a massive war of sieges that drags on and on and on and on and on. Um, there's an epic siege of Rome from 537 to 538 with Belisarius inside the city with a relatively small force besieged by Goths outside it, although they're not enough of them to go all the way around the city. Um, that just keeps going on and on until Belisarius gets reinforcements. Um, he, ha he has another stint on the Eastern Front and a second stint in Italy, but as I said, there aren't any more major battles. Um, the nearest we get is his his last battle in 559 against some Bulgars is just an epilogue to his career. There's a, a significant Bulgar army invades Thrace. Um, there's no, there doesn't, for some reason, there aren't any regular troops around to protect Constantinople. Justinian recalls Belisarius, who scrapes together 300 veterans and some local levies, numbers unknown. Uh, and he decides to advance on the Bulgar camp. Um, the Bulgars, finding nobody in their way, have decided to try a rapid surprise attack on Constantinople with about 2,000 men. Um, Belisarius blocks their way with his small number of uh, regulars, uh, basically ambushes missile troops, I think they're described as slingers, on the flanks, which throws the Bulgars into some disorder and at the same time he gets the local levies to it must be a wooded area because he gets them to go into the woods make noise and shake the trees to scare the bulgar horses um, which apparently works um, the bulgars are panicked by the unexpected resistance the noise retreat and go home <laughs> plundering on the way of course so and that is Belisarius's last battle. <laughs> Strikes me, whilst not a Meg game, that could possibly make it quite a fun, <laughs> a fun little scenario to play under some set of rules, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a, an odd epilogue to his career. It'd certainly be the first time slingers are of any use in any war game. I like slingers. You don't see them in Meg, though. I use them quite a lot. 
Uh, but you, you do take Bowman in preference because of the extra range. Yeah. yeah. Although, as Rich Richard mentioned in, I think it was in our last podcast, wasn't it, that that is potentially quite spurious and just a war games thing. And that Sling is actually somewhat better than that. So I think Richard's tried to talk and he's on mute. Sorry, yes. Um, <laughs> I, um, indeed, I did. Um, of course, sling ranges depend to some extent on the quality of the ammunition. Good river pebbles or ideally lead shot is what you want. Yeah, great. Okay, aware of that, the, I, I took ooh, significantly longer than I'd hoped on that section. But that, that's, as I said, Richard's better at doing these things succinctly than I am. But I hope along the way we've, we've thrown up some ideas and thoughts for people about recreating some of these battles or similar battles and some of the 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 odd things that and I think it does reinforce that you know we, we create rules and lists to sort of average results if you like and that's what you, you try and come up with some average result and average things happening as your median line then add dice to apply friction and, and variability on it but you know, this, I think it shows us how different these battles are. You know, the, the old thing of every battle is unique. There isn't such a thing as a normal battle. You know, and, and what would you do to come up with a set of war games rules if you had the, just these four battles to go on? I think it'd be incredibly difficult. So there we go. I think we should move on to army lists now. I've been talking plenty too long now. So... I am going to hand over to Matt, who has come up with an early Byzantine army. Um, now, we, d we haven't asked him to come up with one of Belisarius's armies. This is just a list from the early Byzantine list in the Byzantine PDF. Um, all I'm going to say at this point is it's a Matt army. <laughs> and I am going to let him now describe it. And I will shut up. Over to you, Matt. Thank you very much. Well, um, before I describe the army, I have to say uh, 2024 is going to be my year of infantry. I've decided I just don't use infantry enough. And um, to improve my play, I'm using infantry armies. There will be some cavalry, but I'm using infantry armies this year. So uh, it, with that in mind, early Byzantine. 552 is the date I chose. I don't think there was any particular. Oh, possibly the Allied date. Um, I've gone with early Byzantine with a Sabia ally. I assume it's Sabia. Correct me if I'm wrong, somebody. Um, so um, for those that aren't aware, the list is standard coastal and mountains for its terrain. Uh, it's professional generals. So I've gone with two competent professional generals. One of those is the army commander and a mediocre professional generals, which gives you eight main army command cards and then a talented instinctive savior allied general um hopefully the reasoning behind that will become clear um it ends up with a pbs of seven and a scouting of three so quite low for byzantines i guess because they normally have more cavalry um, kind of giving away the plot before i get to it but um <clears throat> there we go um so uh, the first is the uh, the uh, bucalere Bucalore, is it? Sorry, I wasn't. Biscuit eaters in my terms. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, the, the, the bodyguard types. 
anyway, cavalry. Drilled loose, superior, protected, experienced bow, short spear. Four of those. They are, I believe, the minimum compulsory that you have to take. Uh, there are then two units of Byzantine cavalry, which are cavalry, drilled loose, average, protected. I've downgraded them to unskilled bow and short spear. Two blocks of four of those, because again, the minimum you have to take is eight. Um, then there are four tugs of Scutatoi, who are infantry, drilled close, average, protected, experienced dart, short spear, shield wall, shield cover, all in eights. So you've got a mere 32 of those. Um, you then have the compulsory Sabia horse archers, which are cavalry formed flexible. I've downgraded them to poor. They're also unprotected. I've also made them unskilled bow, and you have to have six of those. So there you go. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then three blocks of Sabia foot, which are infantry, tribal loose, average protected, devastating charger, melee expert. Two blocks of nine, one block of eight. So that's 11 tugs for a break of six. Uh, there is also a single unit of skirmishers, which are Huns in inverted commas, which are cavalry skirmisher, average, unprotected, experienced bow, Cantabrian. <clears throat> Yay! <laughs> Combat shy, six of those. Um, un unusually for me, I have not downgraded them at all. In fact, I've actually made them an effective unit. Usually I turn them into poor unskilled and leave them in the camp, but um, <laughs> there you go. Um, basically, the reason it is a large foot force is I really struggle to get a decent early Byzantine cavalry army. I just cannot get the list to work for me. And I don't dislike the look of this. I've heard that infantry fighting in woods can be quite good. So, you know, rather than my cavalry. So I thought I'd give it a whirl. So three blocks <laughs> of safety. You don't sound convinced about the idea that infantry are better than cavalry in woods, Matt. <laughs> well, I will say that over the weekend at Ice and Fire, somebody used a saviour foot ally against me in the open <laughs> and battered me silly with it, quite frankly. So um, I'll, I'll give it a whirl. If I have to, I'll fight in the wood. But um, So, yeah, um, how do I see the army working? It's an infantry army. I would probably float the army commander. You use uh, one of the, probably the mediocre for the cavalry the competent with the infantry and um, throw your cards either way that you need them and push. The only thing I really don't like about the army is the utter lack of melee expert because once it's committed, yeah, just mm, we shall see. Save your foot is kind of what I'm looking at as a flank, basically a flank attack through difficult terrain or whatever. Use the infantry beside that one unit of cavalry to skirmish out on the edge and, uh, try and push for i don't think it's got enough grunt to get through quickly though so yeah it'd be interesting to try and i've never used experienced darts as well so that's another um, <laughs> one to try Richard. yeah i'm not i'm not <laughs> a fan um don't think that i don't like the i think the pause of cavalry will have to hide behind the scooter toy yep. um the Sabbath foot, interestingly, I bought uh, Mr. Hamilton with his Sabir ally um, and beat beat them with some uh, Indian archers and a, a, a unit of three elephants. 
Uh, admittedly, the elephants died, but Sammy was very upset that I broke one of his sabir foot. Um, he still won the battle, so he's got nothing to complain about. Um, <laughs> but he's yeah. so unlucky. <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm not a fan. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fine. Yeah. Um, well, you, you you know I'm not going to like the unskilled bow on the Byzantine cavalry. Um, well, yeah, it's it's it's. It, I think you just tipped. To my view, I can see where you're coming from. I think you just tipped a bit too much on the infantry. I think you, you do need a bit more cavalry with this one. I, I do like the idea of a good chunk of the Scutatoi, though. That they, they, They're incredibly good stodge. Shield yeah. wall and shield cover. You, you know, they're just really resistant. You know, if you're looking for games in period as well, for instance, or in a roughly period theme. Yeah, Experience darts can be interesting. I fought an army with darts at the weekend. Happened to be Aztec, um, which was quite exciting because I had a mainly unprotected horse archer army, um, and, and they could have caused me absolute mayhem. But I, I, I managed to avoid that by not standing in too too much in front of them a lot of the time. <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's definitely not. I sort of see where you're coming from, but and I, and I do agree with Richard. Yeah, the, you know, you want you want that Bukalaroi definitely in a six. Well, I mean, the, the the more sensible version would be drop the ally in tidy and go with a nine tug command because that gets you the the vandal internal cavalry, so you get some dev charges. Oh, right, in. yeah. And you can take the bodyguard up to six. Yeah. You'll probably put experienced bow back on the two fours, so it makes it much. Yeah. Worse. Um. If you, you see if you've got if you've got say another couple of units of proper fighting cavalry, I'm not that worried personally. Not that worried about the fours. I know this is something. It's just a personal preference choice Richard and I disagree on because you can use them to support other stuff or even sit in a two base with gap between two Scutator units. If anything charges them, you might be able to do something in that. Which would be the reason I'd want them back up to experience both because that'd be exactly yeah. how I'd use them. So, yeah. yeah, or, or, or it, even projected forward and they skirmish back through the gap, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. Plus, you've got the, the Hunnic cavalry to give you a couple of skilled green dice in another gap somewhere along oh, the yeah. line. Oh, so, yeah, not arguing with so, the hunt. So, yeah, yeah it's, right. yeah, there's a sort of, it's almost one, it's got to be worth bagging on the table for one game to see what it's actually like. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. one, <laughs> one game. One, one game, yes. <laughs> I, I, I prefer the sound of what you're saying around, if you like, your more sensible version. But, you know, it's, it's nice to look at these off the war versions because sometimes you go actually with a bit of tweaking it's going to be good yeah i'd almost certainly try that version and then go back to the better version. <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> but i wouldn't recommend taking it to a two-day competition that's for sure because because you know i'm not even going to bite on that i'm not doing that no yeah yeah no you'd probably <laughs> be trying to sell it after the second game definitely <laughs> It would be, be even quicker onto eBay than some of Robin's armies. <laughs> yeah, that run. 
<laughs> so okay so after a bit of mm, <laughs> we're not we're not that impressed i suppose is the, the thing yeah the let's move on to richard who, so, who i believe has something far more sensible and well yeah it's probably a bit dull to be honest but uh it's so african vandal army number th 3302 um standard coastal mountains uh, poor unfortified camp and i've gone for a talented army commander competent and mediocre subs and a late more ally with a competent instinctive general because i like a bit of uh, peril with my armies uh, that gives me seven PBS cards and six scouting. Whoa. So no shortage of scouting cards in this one. That's pretty impressive. Um, uh, basically, I have eight units of Vandal Cavalry. One is, they're all sixes. One is superior protected short spear, depth charger, melee expert. Uh, the second one is superior, but no melee expert. Uh, that's because only half of the superiors can be melee expert. Okay, I was about to um, then you've got six more average protected short spear, dev charger, melee expert cavalry. So fairly straightforward. The ninth tug is a unit of flexible Moorish cavalry, average unprotected experience javelin, shoot and charge because I had the extra 60 points and I didn't know what to do with them. <laughs> so the army actually comes out at nine nine eight eight or something points if I can find the t nine 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 eight. So um, yeah, I don't think the shooting charge is particularly beneficial, but um, hey, um, I'd rather take it than waste sixty points. Yeah. Uh, along with the nine cavalry tugs, you've got three sugs, two lots of Moorish best light halls or average unprotected skill javelin, and one uh, that is average unprotected experience javelin. Um, that's, that's just the regular light horse. Is that, that, the, is that part of the ally? or They're, they're all part of the ally, the oh. light horse. Um, so, yeah, 12, 12 units in total. So if you're deploying thirds that comes out a neat four um nine tugs so five to break um yeah um charge in break off charge in again and if you can't <laughs> break off rely on your melee expert um just hope you're not fighting something with a lot of elephants i guess <laughs> or long spear probably yes yeah um and a dismountable long spear, perhaps. <laughs> it's, well, it's direct. But if it, it did, did, is this one of Dr. Elliot's armies you've nicked? It's, it's got all the hallmarks of a Simon Elliot army, um, except it's probably got I more like horse than he would use. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd like to claim that uh, I could figure this one out on my own. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest that it might not have been invented by somebody else, but I, um, I'll claim it as a, being an original. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of those lists that does exactly it, what it says on the tin, isn't it? Yeah, it it, it will. Uh, I can't imagine the battles will last too long. 
Um, you might come second best to charging lancers, where you might want to deploy in woods or something <laughs> to get better advantage, because those charging lancers don't work in woods, whereas your short spear can still do so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Was yes. It is what it is, really. Yeah, I'm done. I can't entirely mobile. Yeah. Um, didn't even consider whether no camp was an option, to be honest, but uh, um, probably it means dropping something almost certainly. Yeah, it is, yeah. Matt, what do you think? Stunned him into silence. Him into silence. On, on mute. <laughs> he's, he's, he's ah, that'll be why. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> it's all the extended silence. Yeah. Uh, I, I was too busy staring at this thing of beauty that Richard's created. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know my predilection for massed cavalry. So you know, yeah, short spear, dev charge, melee expert. What's not to love? Yeah. Quite frankly. Um, it's throwing some woods and I'm happy as Larry. It is, yeah, I think it's, you just go for it, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you'll have a bad day if somebody puts long spear and pike down, but um, other than that, yeah, it's, yeah, no. yeah. I, I, I can't find any fault in it, really. <laughs> it is what it is, quite frankly. I love the yeah. seven six scouting. That's just great. The six scouting is yeah. fantastic. You know, getting six is that it can be quite difficult. You know, but obviously with the yeah the three. You've got, you got nine loose. I think you've got, 54, got eight, 54 cavalry yeah. and 18 light horse. Yeah, and then and six of the cavalry form flex, are flexible, yeah. so they count as light horse. So they count as light horse as well. So they count as 48 and 24, yeah. Yeah, so that, that, is, that is pretty good, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, not the sort of army I would want to use. Um, but equally, I'm not with a lot of the armies I use. I'm not sure I'd want to face it either. If you, I think I, I did a few years ago, and Keith Spedding used something quite similar, and um, and I had, a, I, had a, I think it's my Western hat or mounted Western hand, and basically my, my shooting was well above average. And if it hadn't have been, I'd have just been flattened, <laughs> flattened up against the back back edge of the board, basically. So, yeah, no, I think that's obviously getting the thumbs up. Um, let us go with my offering then. Um, I, I rather predictably, I think, went for an assassinated Persian. Let's kick off the year with some men on horses with bows. Um, now, but I've, I, I have chosen to utilise a new feature in the 2024 lists in this one. Anyway, this is Sassanid Persian. Again, it's from the Byzantium book, list number 3305. Um, the terrain is stand-up plains and mountains. I've got a poor and 45 camp, and I've included some Armenian subject allies. Um, my command structure is a talented, instinctive army commander, competent, instinctive, and mediocre, instinctive subby, and the ally commander is competent, instinctive. Uh, with the troops in the army, I get a PBS of seven and a scouting of five. Richard beats me. Oh, damn, damn his eyes, damn his eyes. Well, you chose some infantry, that is your fault. I've got, I, I, do, I do actually have some infantry in this one, yes, indeed. So, okay. The, what I, I have gone for, two, two sixes of best Asvaran, 
who are cavalry formed loose, superior protected, experienced bow, short spear, shower shooting. Then three units of this, the normal Asvaran, who are the same but average. So experienced bow, short spear, shower shooting. Um, the shower shooting is what's been added in the 2024 lists as an option. Um, we've had it before for the middle Sassanid, but they end up with, they also change to being armoured horse fully armoured. Um, the Sassanids have basically dropped that sort of stuff by the later period, becoming far more influenced by Turks and steppe nomads. Um, and a big difference between the two is that whilst the Armoured horse, fully armoured ones can't skirmish or evade or run away. These ones, whilst they can't skirmish, do have the option to run away if they want to. And the shower shooting remains the same. Richard mentioned I've got some infantry. I've got two units of archers, one formed loose, average, protected, experienced bow, six of them, and one formed loose, average, unprotected, experienced bow, combat shy, again, six. Um, the last two tugs are Armenian allies, a guard cavalry, six bases of formed loose superior protected charging lancer, and the six of average protected charging lancer melee expert. Got three sugs, two Sassanid horse archers, skirmishers, average unprotected experienced bow Cantabrian. Um, actually, one of them is Cantabrian combat shy. Uh, they aren't both combat shy because I had a few points left. And there's a compulsory Armenian horse archer as well, who's also average, unprotected, experienced bow, combat shy. They're all sixes. So there you are. It's relatively mobile. Um, it's not as dancey as some um, horse archer armies because it can't skirmish, but I say it can run away if it needs to. Um, and the shower shooting can at times be very interesting. Uh, for those who don't know, um, if you've got shower shooting, um, when you're shooting any S's in the same way as artillery, add one extra slow to your normal slows you might inflict. And if you're shooting in the charge phase and get contacted, the opponents don't get the plus for you having shot. Um, so there we are. I, don't, I think it's a fairly standardish, certainly standard nick. Sassanid Persian, over to you guys for your thoughts. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd quite like to try out the uh, uh, shower shooting with the formed loose cavalry. Yeah. I've never tried it. I faced uh, the close types. Yep, I have. Middle Sassanid Persian at the weekend, and they shot away my elephants very effectively. I suffered that as well. <laughs> In fact, one unit killed, killed. I got a unit of three elephants charged a unit of six of those. Um, they broke my elephants and I felt very lucky that I'd killed two bases of them in the fighting. I never got to fight. I got oh, shot away before reaching my, them. My other elephant unit suffered that one. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, um... I, I think I'd still favour my African vandal over this if they met face to face. Oh, but, it, um, it, yeah. Um, but it'd be an interesting battle to fight. It would, yeah. I think, yeah. If you if you were to be hard nosed about it, if you were, if I was designing it to take on the African vandal, one, I'd have some elephants in it, 
and I wouldn't go with the shower shooting so that I could skirmish as well as run away. Yeah. So, yeah, Matt, this is this wouldn't want to go in the woods because it gets in the way of the shooting. That just makes it more interesting. <laughs> Positive. Shooting on black dice. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's the only kind of shooting you need. The number of times it goes against. Anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, I have to say, I, I really need to try out shower shooting. Mm. Say that fast, go on a day. Because um, I've neither fought against it nor used it. And yeah, it's um, interesting. Yeah, I like it's, the army. It, 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 it's, it's, yeah, something I quite enjoy using, I suspect. Um, yeah, the, the other thing about the formed loose Asaran with shower shooting is they, they move at five on like four in the middle assassin, so it's, it's a more mobile version as well. And and I do like the fact that they can run away, which the yes. close order stuff can't do, because that's always my concern with those close order shower mm. shooting is if you get it wrong, you're going to get absolutely belted. Whereas at least, you know, if you do make a mistake, You've got a fighting chance of getting out of dodge. Yeah, especially if you've been, you've got into, you've made a mistake in front of infantry, you can just run away. Yeah, and if you, if you roll a one, you still go three, which is unless the fleet of foot, the infantry will not catch you, unless you've really cocked up and the angles are wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh-huh. yeah. No, I think it, it, it's it. I, I am very tempted to try it at some point as well because just of the the difference. I have tried the shower shooting ones, the close formation ones. Um, I quite like using them, um, but they, yeah, the, you, you do miss a bit of a, the, this. This has more options, although it, although they, there's a slight odd thing in the, the Asaran in this army are better in the charge phase than the middle assassinid ones because they've got the short spear, but they're worse in the ongoing melee because they're not fully armoured. Mm. So, so that's another a difference between the two and, and finding how that works. Not it's, tempted to try and get the Delami Guard into the list? Um, one, no. And two, I, th- I think I did suggest <laughs> we should we should keep the the dates of these within Belisarius's lifetime and they're only available after his death. Ah, OK. Yeah, but basically, no, I'm not interested in them. Not not in this style of army. It could be a different style of assassinated Persian where, yes, they would be because they're, they're, they're impact weapon, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're sort of regularised Dale army. They're superior impact weapon. They're quite cute. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. No, honestly, this one I fancy, fancy trying, apart from the fact I currently don't have a Sassanid army because I, I sold my old one because I wanted to redo it. I don't have... I wanted to redo the paint job and thought I'm not going to strip it all down and do it. So I sold it and I bought another one. <laughs> I was going to say, wait a couple of weeks, you'll have completed them. No, yeah, no, no. Yeah. There'll That's... be pictures on the on, yeah. on Facebook yeah. before you know. The, the, the main problem is I've, I've, the, the one I've bought is definitely a fourth century one because all all the uh, all the cavalry have got barded or armoured horses, <laughs> where they don't have them in this army. And I would, I'd, something. I'd, they would have to buy I'd, a second Sassanid. I'd want one. to buy another one. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the same army, just different figures. <laughs> and I'm not sure. I, I've got such a big painting pile at the moment. I think that would be daft even for me. 
<laughs> so about three months time then. Yeah. yeah I, I wouldn't put it past me in the second half of the year. It's um, especially as I have identified amongst the various Lurkio ranges um, figures that are quite close to a depiction of a sixth century Sassanid cavalry. <laughs> Actually, as you mentioned that, can we just say that Richard, who's taken over Lurkio, has done a bang up job, at least in the WhatsApp group, of publicising a lot of figures that I didn't even know existed. Yeah, yeah, no, abs abs absolutely. I think um, over the past few years, the... for the benefit of any listeners, this is not me that they're referring. Oh, to. sorry, it is, sorry. It is, sorry. No, it's, it's, it's another another Richard, Richard Balizowski. Um, apologies to Richard if I've mangled his surname there. Who has has taken on the distribution license for Lurkio miniatures um, and is getting it all back up and running and he's hope after some trials and tribulations partly involving HMRC and customs duties and things like that he's hoping I believe to have the website shop up and running the, this weekend or by the end of January yeah, yeah and it does appear there was quite a lot of Lurkio figures that quite a lot of people haven't seen before and I seem to recall certain somebody here went away with a particularly big bag full of lead from the last competition from Richard. Uh, yes, I, but to, to help Richard out, honest, because uh, those are my replacement Sassanids. I sold my original Lurkio army to buy a new one. Um, Rich, because I wanted it, Richard took the opportunity to um, one test out some of his moulds and test out his um, casting process to get his hand in. Um, so I, I luckily... Got, you know, obviously, I'll, you know, obviously it's not freebie. I had to pay him, but I got it earlier than other customers will do. <laughs> so, made me feel good. Slightly smug, but somebody will pinch an army before I will. So, so yeah, and a big shout out to Richard. He's doing a lot of work on that, and uh, it, I wish him the best of luck with that because I like quite a lot of the Lurkio ranges. I'm liking more and more now. Now I can see them. Well, it does does help, doesn't it? Yes. Know what you're buying. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, yeah. So okay. So um, realise we've been going a bit now. So uh, probably ought to be winding up. Otherwise, our, our listeners will be falling asleep. Um, I just wanted to mention one thing because I promised somebody this. Um, I promised Simon Stokes that in the next podcast I would mention that on the 23rd and 24th of March at Battlefield Hobbies, Simon and his friends are running a Pacto campaign weekend, um, which isn't a, a regular competition type thing. It, it is running, they're, they're looking to have four to six players running a campaign over the weekend. Um, they will provide 3,000 point Pacto armies for players to use. Um, although you can bring your own if you've got the right figures. I, I can't, they've got three possible campaigns or they could run multiple campaigns if they get enough people, four to six players per campaign. A classical Greek one, a Rise of Rome one and an early Italian Wars Condottieri. Um, so if people would like to do something a bit different from, the, from our usual um, competition weekends, uh, run through a whole campaign over a couple of days, 
there's your chance. Do something a bit different. You don't need figures. You just need to turn up with enthusiasm. <laughs> so, and, and I believe you can turn up for just one day as well. Oh, that could be good because I'm not sure I can do the two days, but one day I'm sure I could. So that that is my intention, as I believe one of the days clashes with the Society of Ancients Battle Day. It does. And oh, one of the reasons I, it was partly because I think I haven't been to one of those for ages and I really ought to go back to one at some point. So I might be doing the same as you, Richard. <laughs> um, no, thanks for mentioning that because I, I hadn't picked that up. So, so yeah, really, I would encourage that because it, it's it's going to be something different. Um, you know, it's, it's a give it a go, you know, and I think, you know, obviously Pacto will work, should work really well within the campaign across the weekend running campaigns because the battles can be resolved fairly quickly. So you actually get campaign games. Come, I've no idea what the mechanisms for their campaigns are going to be, but I'm sure it'll be fun because they run them regularly at their clubs. So there we go. Um, Richard's also obviously just mentioned the SOA Battle Day. So I don't know if you want to expand on that, Richard. Uh, it's This year it will be a refights of the Battle of Elipa. Uh, 206, I believe, in Spain, uh, Carthaginians and Romans. Um, it will be held at a new venue. Uh, this will be Thatcham Village Hall, which is about three or four miles outside of Newbury, between Newbury and sort of Reading direction along the A4. Uh, all welcome, £10 entry for the day. Um, and there'll be lots of other rule sets playing the same battle at the same time. Is is one of them a meg game? Are you running that? Uh, at this stage, I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's a it's a, I remember it's, it's a long time since I've been to one. It was it was great fun. It was it's interesting just to see how different rule sets take like, different different takes on games uh, and. Is, is it still the people are always welcoming for people to join in games? Yeah, you don't have to be arranging a game. You can just turn up on the day and participate in in the games that take your fancy. Great stuff. OK, Matt, anything to finish with? Anything you'd like to say? Um, the, other than Ice and Fire was absolutely stonking last weekend. <laughs> my usual mediocre, mediocre middle tables position but um yeah no it was really good as always um i think i think we were all about round there weren't we yes yeah yeah, yeah we were we, we were bunched in the middle quite nicely <laughs> yes i i i took gok turk with which had elephants and horse archers and it was a very interesting experience trying to coordinate elephants and horse archers because they are not the most complimentary troop types. And that, that was really, really interesting. Um, not sure I'd do it again. Thoroughly enjoyed the four games, but <laughs> you can test theories just a little too far. <laughs> mine, was, mine, mine was totally different, but for similar reasons, I, I, I ran um, Kyrenian Greek with dismounted hoplite, uh, dismountable hoplites, sorry, which was a... <laughs> A whole world of cheese, quite frankly. <laughs> so, although I will keep the army and use it, I'm not going to be using the dismantable hoplite option because it's just so broken. 
Okay, yeah. Oh, of course, we should say thank you so much to uh, the organisers for that. Um, Ray, who organised it, GK did a lot of did the draws and stuff, and very, very kindly um, for gave up his Sunday games because unfortunately uh, Ben Allen had to go home because of family illness, um, and we were left with odd numbers. And Graham Clacker, uh, uh, <laughs> I'd say, took one for the team. He took two for the team. Um, so, so big thanks to him as well. Okay, so unless there's any last minute thoughts, I think thank you guys for your participation tonight. And hopefully you, the listeners, enjoyed this slightly different one. Um, apologies if I went on a bit too long, but hopefully in between there, um, Richard and Matt made some intelligent comments about possible battles. And we look forward to seeing you later on at the next one or the next comp, or whatever. So, goodbye and keep rolling those skulls. <laughs>